for me, courage is more than just being an entrepreneur. I think we live in a world that is fraught with danger and rising authoritarianism. And so for me, my heroes are people who really stand up and tell the truth when it comes at a personal cost. This is Brave New Girl Podcast, and we share real stories with real impact. I'm your host, Lou Hamilton, and I'm a filmmaker, author, and artist, and passionate about storytelling for making a positive difference in the world. Your story matters. It tells of who you are and why you do what you do in the service of others. And my guests bring you their stories, their highs and lows, and courage gained along the way. Join us for the ride. This week's guest is serial social entrepreneur and TEDx speaker Sonali Figueres. She is the founder and editor-in-chief of Green Queen, an award-winning impact media platform advocating for social and environmental change in Hong Kong with a mission to shift consumer behavior through inspiring and empowering original content. Welcome, Sonali, to Brave New Girl Podcast. Hi, Sonali. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm very good. So you're in Hong Kong right now? I am in Hong Kong. Yes, we are. It's a very exciting week in Hong Kong. We finally are joining the rest of the world with no more hotel quarantine for incoming travel. Oh, my goodness. That's been a long time then. Yeah, it's we're really happy. Well, welcome back out into the world. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed. It's I mean, Hong Kong is such a great place to live and we've been kind of isolated. And so we and it's just it's been difficult with the COVID measures. So we've lost a lot of people and now we can hopefully, you know, rejoin. I guess for most people, COVID is a distant memory at this point. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, and hopefully going into the winter, we're, we're all going to be fine, too. You have the finger on the pulse for all things environmental and climate issues in Hong Kong and Asia with Green Queen. And so I wonder, can you paint a picture of what climate crisis consciousness is really feeling like out there? Yeah, that's a really good question, though. I would say that it's unfair to kind of paint Asia with a single brush. Um, and it's definitely different in different countries. Um, and there's a focus on different things depending on the country. So some countries have a bigger focus on waste, others on food security, um, others on uh, plastic pollution, um, others just on pollution in general and, and health, health issues, you know. Um, but overall, I think while climate speak and climate culture is still kind of percolating throughout the population in across Asia Pacific. I think that when it comes to the younger generation, so the gen, generation Z, the zillennials, um, this is where they're such an interesting generation because they are a flat generation. Um, and so where my mother and your mother would probably have come from a very different cultural background and have very different cultural reference points. Um, Gen Z is much more uniform in their cultural reference points. So they use the same software, they type on the same phones, they look at the same screens, um, they listen to the same music. And the climate crisis is one of those things that is they are aware of no matter where they live. 
And so they are providing this level of consciousness um, across the region that is the same as a, as Gen Z in the rest of the world. Um, but I would say the older generations are maybe not as tuned in or maybe don't feel it in the same with the same urgency. Um, I also think it's not the same uh, fall and and kind of like hit you in the face news because in Asia we've always had monsoons and typhoons and disruptions and many people across Asia live with you know energy problems where you'll lose energy for a while or water um, limitations or they're much closer to some of these structural um, issues whereas in the west it's sort of been and in the global north it's sort of been you know unlimited water unlimited land unlimited great weather unlimited agricultural success and now the realities of climate change are really hitting people in the face the weather has become super unpredictable in a way that if you've grown up having typhoons every year or monsoons every year and flooding, right? You're, you're just, it's not going to have the same impact on you as urgent and as shocking. Um, and we, we are at different levels of industrialization than other parts of the world. So it's a different lived reality in that sense too, in terms of GDP per capita and kind of um, how much people, you know, household spending budgets and how to look at, you know, what consumer goods you can buy. You, you know, Asia is still very much in, in huge parts of Asia. We're still lifting hundreds of millions of people into, you know, the middle class. Whereas in Europe, you could argue the middle class is dying in many ways. So it's just a very different, the, the macro fundamentals are are somewhat different i want to go more into what you're doing with green queen and how it came about in a bit but first can can we sort of look back to your childhood and see whether there are any clues to the child that you were to the woman that you are now and doing what you do and so passionate about what you are championing yep there were definitely clues they were not necessarily eco clues, but they were clues that I would be a journalist and an editor and a writer. There were clues that I would fight for justice. Um, my focus when I was younger was much more around social justice. Um, I, you, you know, so when I was nine years old, I started a newspaper at school. It was like photocopied at the library and I wrote it out in, in felt-tip pen. So I wanted to amuse people. There were jokes. I wanted to tell people news about what was going on in the classroom. Um, so, so obviously I had this need to share information and, and, and recommendations and things like that. And then also I had a very strong sense of injustice. Um, and I still have it today and I still really struggle with it because it's very hard to be in business and be really struck by injustice because you sort of have to kind of put that aside to be more pragmatic, to move on. Um, so when I was 16, I started a magazine about human rights in my school in Singapore. Uh, it was called Peace of Mind. Peace spelt like P-E-A-C-E. -E. That was the time of, you know, a lot of awareness about the Dalai Lama and how he was in hiding. And there were a lot of issues around Tibet. 
um, which, to be frank, there's a lot of things that I'm that are kind of echoing around that with with Xinjiang and China and just just everywhere in the world. It feels like human rights are. On one hand, we've never been more aware and we've never been more connected. But on the other hand, we are losing human rights in certain places and and or just not getting better, making progress. I guess when I was a kid, I would have thought that by the time I was an adult, we would have solved a lot of that. So yes, there were signs that I am very concerned with injustice and that I want to share information and that I want to tell stories. Um, so somehow, um, I also grew up in a family of entrepreneurs, especially my mom. So the dinner table chat was very much around business and what works and what doesn't and growing a business. So that, that also informed kind of my entrepreneurial journey. You had your own personal health journey too. And I guess that informed later on your sort of your passion for health and well-being and how we can actually sort of look after ourselves and re-find health if we've lost it along the way. So can you talk about what what that journey was and how that transformed how you dealt with yourself in, in your own life, but also then use that to kind of use that energy to then fight for, for the health and well-being of others? Absolutely. Um, so I definitely wasn't super environmentally aware um, compared to my awareness about things like human rights and social justice. Um, but I became very unwell when I was around 15, 16, and, and it, it stayed that way for many years. And nothing was life-threatening, but it was debilitating in terms of pain and, and just really discomfort and um, not be, being able to have a cure. So I experienced something I like to call medical misogyny, um, where I was just completely dismissed. And to this day, I have a, a serious skepticism towards doctors and I do not trust them. And I assume that they are not there to help me, which is unfair because there are many wonderful doctors in the world. And I'm sure many of them do get into the profession to help people, but that is not what I experienced. I experienced years of basically being gaslighted or gaslit rather by the industry and by being told that my symptoms were in my head, they were unimportant, they were, they didn't make sense, um, that there was nothing anyone could do. I was misdiagnosed a bunch of times. So I really lived that. And most of these doctors were older white men. There were a couple of women, but they were mostly older white men. And this is in different countries. So Hong Kong, the UK, the US. So not just one medical system. Um, so I was really pushed to find my own answers, um, which I don't think anyone should have to do, but this is where we were. And so I started doing research. So this was right around the time, this was right around the time when Google came along and it was suddenly possible to do research. And to this day, I'm a research junkie and I absolutely have to learn about everything about a topic when I get interested in it. And um, so I started you know, looking into my symptoms, uh, feeling like there was maybe more going on than just one isolated thing. Um, 
And I found some answers and I, you know, I would go back to the doctors and say, you need to do this test. And I think I might need to look at this. And there seems to be, you know, um, uh, a correlation between these symptoms and these other symptoms. And, and, and it, and then I started to start to realize that there were women out there that were experiencing what I was experiencing. And there was very little research money going into this. And then I learned scary facts like over, the majority of all medical studies are done on, on, you know, white males. Um, and, and, and it's just really scary. And so we are, you know, following, you know, medical advice and dietary requirements and vitamin and nutrition requirements that are based on, you know, white men. I mean that, so it's not just medical misogyny, it's, it's racial mis, uh, you know, medical racism as well, where it's, it's affecting, you know, minority groups who are not properly represented in data sets. Um, um, and it's, it's really interesting once you start going into it. I mean, there's things like parenting studies have only ever really mostly take the data from North America. So that's ignoring most of the world's, you know, parenting cultures. And so, you know, this was such a, a, a moment of revelation to me that all these institutions that, you know, somebody like my mom might hold really in high regard, right? She's such a, she's such a boomer in that way. She's like such a, she respects doctors, she respects bankers, you know, lawyers. And I was never like that. Like since I was a young kid, I was like, why? Explain. Tell me more. Not sure I believe you. And which by the way, was not welcome in, in, so many areas of my life, but was luckily welcome in school. I, I had really good teachers in my French school. Um, and you know, my mom was fine with it. Um, not always my stepdad, for example. I mean, he didn't like it at all. Um, but that sort of informed who I was. And I think the doctors could sense that I was, you know, not going to just follow their instructions. And so the research led me to understand that if I wanted to solve some of the pain and the discomfort and the symptoms, I could maybe change how I was eating. And that's when it all kind of happened. I started looking at the products I was using in my bathroom and in my kitchen. And I started looking at, um, what I, um, you know, what, what I was buying at the grocery store, you know, where was my food made and, just the more I dove in, the more I, I got into food systems and understood that our food systems were, you know, complex and, you know, we're feeding the world, but maybe not feeding the world in an environmentally friendly way and in a healthy way. And our food system was extremely dominated by certain big food interests. Um, and I just couldn't understand why. I hadn't learned about this in school and my mom didn't seem to know about it and the doctors weren't talking about it. And it just seemed like no one was making this connection between food and health. And so that I got into it and I, and then green queen came from there. It was a blog that was originally meant to help people in Hong Kong live a greener, safer, kinder life. And then eventually we turned it into a new site. Um, and then we, and then at the same point in time, I decided to start my other business, the organic trade platform, because I felt like we needed, we, I felt like we were going to have an organic revolution in food and we needed to democratize access for businesses who wanted to source organic. 
Um, and so it, it just went from there. What was the, the change that you started to see as you started to change your own habits and the products that you were surrounding yourself, the, the change in environment, the change in, in diet? How, because I know that people, you know, listeners will realize, you know, and it, it, we, we talk about it more now, the connection between our bodies and our environment and, and what we put into our bodies. But sometimes it can take a while for the results to turn around and you sort of have to have a lot of faith to to keep going and to trust that this is something that will work for you. So what was your experience of that? Well, I mean, I think there are no magic bullets and I'm not a doctor, so I'm certainly not giving people medical advice. I think that when you start taking away sugar and ultra processed foods from your diet and you eat at home more and you're more conscious about sourcing products that are, um, you know, uh, I guess more organic or biodynamic or local and fresher and in season and all these kind of things. I feel like it's hard not to feel better. Um, but I definitely tried all kinds of different eating regimes. I did gluten-free. I did the candida diet. I did raw vegan. I did vegan, etc. Um, and all of this at the time was very much for a health point of view, but I also did things like remove plastic from my house and change to glass and stopped using microwaves. Um, and really just like tried to get more foods unpackaged and, you know, tried to reduce meat in my diet and definitely seafood. I think seafood was such a big awakening for me of how most fish that we eat is, is pretty dirty in terms of toxins and and then not to mention the social justice part of me was just horrified when I learned about, you know, the the slave slavery inherent in most fishing um you know products. Um so so that that had a lot that that felt better. I mean, you know, you 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 just do you you feel better when you don't eat crap. And isn't it funny how the connection between health and environment, so the, the ecosystem in your body and the ecosystem of the world, of the planet, are so intricately linked that one inevitably has an impact on the other. And you had, you know, you experienced that for yourself and, and presumably started to feel weller the more that you focused on those aspects of, of your environment and, and your, your diet. How did that then sort of move your mindset from looking at your, yourself as an individual to then kind of looking outwards and going, okay, well, this has had such a dramatic effect on me. It's also probably going to have a big effect on other people and almost certainly on the planet. So how did you go from, from the personal to the bigger picture and to creating the platform that you did? Well, I felt like I had been let in on this huge kind of secret and I felt like there was going to be a revolution and my gut told me that when people discovered what I discovered, which is that our food system was broken and that, you know, our soil was depleted and we were, we were like, like factory farming was just, just gross and, you know, most monocropped you know pesticide full farming is just not not good for the farmer not good for the field not good for our health i felt like that opacity that existed around this food system globally 
was eventually going to get stripped down thanks to the internet and people like me were going to go online and find information and there was going to be this kind of transparency that happened um, and it was just going to cause people to, to just be, to have a reaction. Not everybody, but people who cared about food, people who cared about their health, people who were sick, people who didn't feel good, people who had wondered for years if, if they were imagining how they were feeling upon eating certain foods and, and people who were fighting back with their, their personal instincts against, you know, food marketing. And so I, I just, it was obvious to me that this was going to come out and it was obvious to me that there were other people out there like me, but I had no idea that it would, you know, I would start a media company and it would just become this big thing. I really saw it as a blog where I was sharing resources, going back to my personality and kind of the role I play even in my social groups, you know, like I'll always be the one recommending this restaurant and this brand and this thing. And, you know, I tend to, to be like that kind of sharer. Um, and so I was just trying to do that on a bigger platform, on an online platform, and really had no idea about running a media company, you know, wasn't experienced in that. And it just kind of, right away, there was resonance. And then I realized that what I really wanted to do was, was, was I wanted to be up to keep people up to date on the solutions um, and the trends. And that's really what Green Queen is. I see it very much as like a signals platform where we are an impact media and our job is to highlight solutions and people and organizations and, and just ideas that are out there um, because the founders want to change the world and they want to fight the climate crisis specifically. Um, and with the climate crisis comes, you know, the biodiversity crisis and the animal welfare crisis and the plastic crisis. And, and so everything always fed into that. And then with my other businesses, it was always like, how can I make it easier for businesses to get closer to the right products and solutions? And so there was always this common goal of, with information or, or services or products to make it easy and to make it accessible. Because I just feel like you have to make it easy for people. You have to make it accessible for people. So that's really where it came from. Do you find that you are in a bubble of people that already believe in what you believe in and are already championing those kind of causes? Or are you able to sort of impact big pharma, big farms, politics through this kind of scratching away at this giving information, revealing the truth, showing what works, showing a better way? I mean, both yes and no. I think that, for example, I do feel like a lot of social media and places like LinkedIn, as, as supportive and wonderful as they are, are a bit of an echo chamber. And, you know, the like tends to attract the like. And that's just how the algorithms of those social media platforms are designed. So that's, I mean, that's working like it's supposed to. LinkedIn wants you to find your tribe online. And so does Facebook and so does Instagram. And you know, and, and it's really interesting because TikTok is really um, upending that, right? Because their whole success is that they show you what they think you want and it has nothing to do really with what your network is looking at. Um, and so there's a lot more discovery. Whereas LinkedIn is basically just regurgitating to me at this point what I already believe in. 
Um, that being said, it's still a very useful tool to connect with people. And so it, it does play a role. So I don't think that, I don't think that I'm maybe affecting people that way, but I've, I've become a very seasoned speaker over the last few years. Um, and I speak at schools and corporates and, and, and events all the time. And there, I do think that I am really reaching people that are not in my bubble. And Green Queen is quite different than a lot of the other industry kind of publications in that one, we've always made the connection between health and sustainability. And I find that if you bring health into it, it's a lot easier for people to connect to it. Um, that's just how we're wired as humans. Um, uh, for example, a lot of people have an awakening about the planet when they become parents. It's that parental awakening moment, and that's just very common all over the world. Um, so we do tend to have a lot of those. Um, and then there's, you know, also a lot of people that just want to be inspired. And they enjoy the kind of mix of news that we curate and are focused on all kinds of things from fashion to packaging to like books you should read to like, Oh, meet this cool person doing this cool thing. Um, we do focus a lot on food and that's been a direction we've taken in the last few years. And the reason for that is that we really believe that decarbonizing your plate is, is really such an important way to fight against the ills of the climate crisis. And yet if you look at climate policy, food is very often not, implicated in that. So we see it as our job to really make that connection for people. Hey, you know, you could reduce, you know, livestock beef and dairy in your diet, and this would have a big effect on your emissions and you could reduce food waste. And that would be a second big effect on your emissions. And it's not just about not flying or, 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 or cycling, right. Or not using a plastic straw. So, so there's, 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 there's a lot to be said for, for really making that connection for people. And I do believe that we have done that in, in Asia, especially really made that connection. Um, I also think that we offer Asian companies a, a, a global platform. Um, and so we've helped a lot, a lot of companies have gotten funded, um, and found partners, investors, advisors, clients, thanks to our coverage. So that's something that we're doing for the wider community. And it's really important because we cannot have a world that is only designed for and by Western company founders. It must be including Asian company founders and African company founders and Latin, Latin American company founders. We need diversity and inclusion in ideas as well as like board memberships and like, you know, employee percentages. We need it in founders too. And the reality is, if you look at, you know, alternative protein companies, you know, a majority are still run by, again, white men. So it's, again, white men solving the problems. And I just don't think that's the best way to solve problems because I think that we need, we need other voices. And, and some really interesting innovation does come out of Asia because it's localized to the needs of the market. And, and our geographies and our countries. And so I think we do play a very important role in that, in that sense. If you were to rip the system up and start again, what would your vision for the future 
look like? Well, I would definitely take a detour and not get Reagan or Thatcher elected. <laughs> I would, I would kind of like want to fix trickle down economics or neoliberal capitalist theory or that for me, that's really where we went wrong. Um, I think that all the data suggests that until the sixties and seventies, most democracies were actually trying really hard to give citizens a fair shot at life and create, you know, a viable middle class. And I think that when we decided to, you know, get rid of all state intervention because of this, like, you know, the boogeyman of communism, um, I think we went wrong. And like shareholder capitalism just does not work. And um, I would also fix the mask because I just don't, my biggest call to, you know, my biggest war cry these days is we're doing the maths wrong. At the end of the day, we are in this nonsense nightmare because shareholder capitalism does not account for the externalities of environmental costs, labor costs, um, health costs, right? Somebody else is paying for those in the same way that all these tech billionaires think of themselves as huge geniuses but they used public money that was that taxpayers covered to create the internet okay it wasn't one person who just did that and won at life mark zuckerberg did not solve the world's problems he benefited from his birthplace and 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 all the resources made available to him thanks to the US government and the US military and all the communal intelligence and talent and, and, and progress of the world till then. And so this idea that we have these like individual geniuses that we need to worship because we no longer have strong institutions like religion, okay, um, I think has really damaged us. And, and we worship at the feet of politicians and celebrities and business founders and leaders. And it's not healthy. So if we were to create a world where things were better, how do you define courage in terms of those people who are trying to find climate solutions and create better health and well-being for the people of the world? Well, I mean, in today's world, for me, courage is, is, is more than just being an entrepreneur, I have to say. I think we live in a world that is fraught with danger and rising authoritarianism. And so for me, my heroes are people who really stand up and tell the truth when it comes at a personal cost. Like if you're going to tweet from the anonymity and privacy of your bedroom in a in a, and where you're living a middle-class safe life, you're not really that brave for me, right? Like brave people to me take on, take on odds of death and imprisonment and torture. The Maria Ressas of this world, Arundhati Roy is a personal hero. Like sure, you could go back in time and talk about someone like Nelson Mandela. Like if you're willing to go to jail to tell the truth, you know, you, you know, I really respect that. And I think very few of us really have the, 
the stomach to do that. So that's how I define bravery today. And in your own life, how do you find courage in your own life? I don't feel like I'm courageous enough. You know, I, I actually feel like I give myself a really hard time on that in, in my head. I actually feel like there are many fears that stop me from doing more. I'm more driven by deep, dark, possible depression about the state of the world. And if I'm going to survive, I need to fix things. And I just do what I can every day to work on that. But I don't have any illusions about the size and importance of my contributions. And I definitely think I could use more courage. If I, I feel like I could tell the truth more, but I, I don't, I don't think that I do enough. Um, I think that that's probably something that I really need to work on for the next 10 years is how to let go of the fear of not, you know, and, and be more brave and just, and just say, F it, let's, let's tell the truth. But we're all beholden to, you know, childhood hangovers and the people around us and cultural norms and, and, and I already stand out so much as a person. And I always have, I've always been, you know, the black sheep, the different one, the brown one in a sea of white people. I grew up in a very white school where I was the only girl that was, you know, not white to be honest and only, and half French. Um, I was the only non-Catholic in my class, you know, so when I was nine years old, I really wanted to get baptized because I just thought that would solve all my problems. And then at the last minute, realized I'm not sure I believed in God. So I didn't do go ahead with that. And, and I think I grew up with a mom who is super worldly and super glamorous and super talented and successful, but also did live many of her years quite whitewashed. Um, and, and has since completely changed, but that had a profound impact on, on, on me. And so I'm still fighting those, those kind of hauntings. Um, I don't think I'm brave enough. Um, I want to be braver. Becoming a mom has made me feel I... like I can be braver. Uh, getting older feels like you can be braver because you're getting closer to death. And so you're going, what am I waiting for? What am I stopping for? You know? And also as you get older, you just realize how, self-involved people are and how no one really cares about you. Um, but you know, I can tell you that I've really struggled with the idea of being an influencer and being a media personality and having my face on camera. And so that's why I didn't pursue, you know, green queen didn't even have my name on it for the first four years, nor a picture. I was just very shy. And I, you know, I, I was about, about, I don't know. I think for me, there is this idea that ego and fame are sort of related. And I don't want to pursue ego. And I, I do not have the answer yet. And we're getting very deep here. But how do you pursue influence and impact without pursuing ego? Well, I think that you do what you do, which is think about the bigger picture and the impact for the whole community, for the whole planet and for the, for the wider community beyond ourselves. And when you have that as the goal, 
that's way bigger than than ego and you know I'm the same I'm shy I'm really not keen to sort of get out there but when I believe in something that I'm really passionate about I'll move mountains it's like a mother bear isn't it you know to protect your young to protect the planet you'll do anything thank you so much Sonali for creating a media platform that encourages debate on the topics around climate change and green solutions it's been brilliant talking to you keep doing what you're doing and let's try and all be brave together <laughs> thank you so much for having me and for letting me talk really on such a deep level thank you so take care Thanks, Sonali, for showing us how we can rise up from our own personal setbacks and channel our phoenix-like energy into something bigger than ourselves. You can find out more about her work on www.greenqueen.com.hk and follow her on LinkedIn at Sonali Figueres. Thank you, Brave New Girl Media, for producing and sourcing the guests for the show. And to you for listening. I hope today's story inspires you to step into the spotlight and show how you too are positively impacting the world. Take care, choose courage, and see you next time.